welcome to the Regeneration Podcast. Co-host Michael Martin with my other co-host, Mike Sauter. How's it going, Mike? Uh, battling a little bit of the laryngi, the laryngitis today. Yesterday, not a sound came out of my throat. It descended in one day. Yesterday was silence. And uh, today, I'm making a comeback. Hey, check this out. You know what this is? It looks like straight vodka. <laughs> it's a good idea. It's actually sap. Yeah, yeah. It's it's maple water. Sense. They call it maple yeah. water. Right? Yeah. We've got a couple gallons already because of the weather. Yeah, I think we have... 15 or 20 gallons already. They bottle it, you know, and ferment it, not ferment it. They put a little, sometimes they put fizz in it, but it sells for like eight bucks a six pack. Does it really? It, yeah, Google it online. You know what? Uh, well, here, actually, people I know use it for instead of water for making mead, which okay. I, don't have any, I don't have any honey right now or I would do that. But anyway, so welcome to the show. And we're here and we're very excited because we're going to speak to John Brevaki. Uh, it's the person I met, I probably... A year and a half, two years ago, through our mutual friend Nate Heil, yeah, and the Grail Country podcast, my good buddy, and uh, and, and let me so, so to set this up, you know, recently a lot of you may have seen that uh, John had a conversation with Jordan Peterson, which drew a lot of attention because uh, John was talking about uh, visionary experience and personal experiences, you know, of. Well, we'll have to. I won't even venture to say what they are. We'll have let John. It's a fascinating explain. conversation. Yeah. But you know, but this this in, I mean, interest in this topic for me goes to childhood, and I was trying to figure out where it happened. And my dad used to always talk to us about stuff like this, but probably it has something to do. And I'm not. Don't quote me on this. It probably has something to do with seeing the movie The Song of Bernadette when I was probably eight years old. Lord. This idea that people could see saints or spiritual beings or Christ or whomever, right? And my own experience, though, you know, I'm very interested in this. I think um, part of what my work as a poet is, and, is, and I've talked before about this new book that I, I have coming out next month, that a lot of what's in that book was is actually a kind of active imagination of examining the landscape around my farm here in michigan so and it was really you know, i mean i would have to say probably more spiritually nourishing for me um than just about anything I've, I've done before which is which took me by surprise but anyway um and of course I, my dissertation is also on religious experience of that kind but, but usually expressed through through poetry or other kinds of writing in the early 17th, in the 17th century. But we asked John to come on to the show today to talk about his own experiences. And John, for those of you who might not know, which I can't believe anybody who's watching the show would not be familiar with yeah. John, but John uh, came to my attention first through his, uh, his series of videos on the meaning crisis. And this was, I believe, this is even before COVID, was it? Wasn't it 2019. Yeah, so right before. It's a, yeah, it's the fifth year anniversary of when I started releasing the series. Wow. And and when John was doing this, you know, I was really taken by it because, you know, and I, you know, like John, I'm a I'm a teacher, a professor, and you can see the, you know, that young people are dying in a way, spiritually dying for not have not finding meaning in the world. 
And John brought this to people's attention, which I think was you know, was a great, great uh, task and and much needed. And 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 so this is kind of for John and kind of bloomed and blossomed and exploded over the last five years. Um, and you know, I always turn to John, you know, to, because I always know when I see a video that comes up with John or an article or something that. This is this is a man who is is a true philosopher, a true mm-hmm. lover of wisdom, and and there's a there's a seeking for wisdom in all that I see John doing that, which is to me very encouraging. So so John, why don't you tell us before we get into our, our topic at hand, um, what prompted this journey in into into becoming a lover of wisdom for you? Um, so what prompted it was, um, I was brought up in a very religious framework. Um, and, um, it was, I think it's properly described as a sort of a fundamentalist Christian framework, uh, in my immediate family, my extended family. Um, and I, you know, I now looking back would say that in many ways it was traumatizing, mm-hmm. I mean, they were genuine. I have clear episodic memories of traumatic experience around it. Um, I've come to understand better uh, sort of what my mother's motivation was for that. And uh, I, I, a lot of stuff I didn't find out until much later. Um, <clears throat> and I've also, you know, did some serious therapy around this. And I have also did a lot of philosophical reflection uh, to try to come to a more balanced appraisal and appreciation of that framework I, I i i rejected it i had to i think in order uh to properly i don't know what to say psychologically survive um mm-hmm. but um as i as i sometimes say it left sort of a taste for the transcendent in my mouth um and i went at that time and i'm of course uh, you know a late adolescent and i went through a, a, a meaning crisis because you know um it, the, your mother religion is like your mother tongue. It sort right. of gets into the, the 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 guts of your psyche, um, and then I, I, I and initially I was sort of very nihilistic and all that sort of stuff, um, and then I I, I went into university um, and I took a course in the introduction to philosophy and we read Plato's Republic and I met the figure of Socrates, and Socrates provided me with a uh, a like a, a viable and intoxicating and attractive alternative about how one could pursue um, self-transcendence, but in, in terms of the love of wisdom um, and how rationality and the love of wisdom don't have to be antagonistic. They can, all, they can in fact, be erotically conjoined to each other in a way that of course, is very powerful for a young man to encounter, mm-hmm. as you can imagine. Um, and of course, there was lots of things about this that uh, where uh, I've come to get a more, uh, like a more, uh, I don't know, mature, somewhat, you know, uh, smiling, you know, I, I like the fact that Socrates won every argument and there was all that kind of attraction, the kind of stuff that Plato like talks football. about. How you... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like he beat the enemy or something? Pardon me? Almost like he beat the bad guy. Yeah, almost like he beat the bad guy, and also how I could, uh, you know, 
do better at the arguments I was having with my extended family about mm -hmm. aspects of Christianity. Mm -hmm. And there was there was an instrument. There was there was two things. There was an instrument, an instrumental attitude, but there was also a, I think a genuine existential calling that I experienced. Mm -hmm. And the second uh, grew, and uh, and I, I took up academic philosophy. But the problem was. At that time, academic philosophy is not about the love or cultivation of wisdom. It's this other thing, conceptual analysis, techniques of argumentation, uh, meta-reflection on ethics and science. I found all of that extremely valuable. I appreciated greatly the skills I was being taught, but the hunger that had been at least ignited in me by confronting the figure of Socrates and the practice of... Um, uh, uh, of Enlenkas and, uh, and, and, so, and so forth, and the mix of uh, what I would now call the imaginal and the rational, and um, uh, that was still there for me, but I did as many people are want to do because of my ignorance of the, my own tradition. I thought that I had to turn to an Asiatic philosophy to get that, and so I under, I, and for me, it's never been about gathering beliefs. I took up a serious Tai Chi Chuan. There was a place down the road, literally down the road, where they taught Tai Chi Chuan, Vipassana meditation and meta contemplation. That's where I initially got now the idea about an ecology of practices because they didn't call it that, but that, that's what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And this opened me up profoundly. Um, and then what happened is um, I moved from philosophy to cognitive science and the people in cognitive science were starting eventually to talk about this stuff about mindfulness and transformation and meaning, um, and and then about at this time I encountered the work of Pierre Dow and the idea, the argument of philosophy as a way of life. Mm -hmm. and I got into the Stoic and Neoplatonic traditions and discovered, <laughs> yep, yeah, there it is, right there, there is. right, and so. In a way that uh, was very fortuitous to me, and I'm grateful for it. I don't, I'm not claiming any authorship all over it. All of these things came together, mm -hmm. and they started to mutually reinforce and take on a life of its own. And then I was invited to teach a course on Buddhism and cognitive science, and I started doing this, talking about this, and I realized that the issue I was talking about was not perfect personal or idiosyncratic to me when I started talking about wisdom and meaning in life and self-transcendence my students eyes were like mm -hmm. feed me feed me like you said and um and then that and then I started doing a course on the psychology of wisdom and same thing I've just taught a version of it today um and um and then a student came to me and said you know you should take turn all of this and turn it into a YouTube series and, and that's how awakening from the meaning crisis got started um, and I've then been very lucky that my personal proclivity of, of seeking uh, to uh, aspirationally follow uh, Socrates, mm -hmm. I have a whole series called After Socrates, where I try to articulate mm -hmm. that for people. Um, and my personal, uh, that personal uh, quest and, and my professional life have just mutually dovetailed and my, both my uh, academic career and my public career have dovetailed around this. And I am... I am, uh, like I said, I'm I, I want to be, and I feel that I am humble about that. I'm just grateful that all of that has fallen into place. But I very much feel like I am now um, being carried along by something that I'm participating in. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's <clears throat> that's really wonderful. Um, you may, you know, as, as also being a teacher, you know, of in, in teaching very very much in the same kind of framework, you know, when 
that like you know which is why i switched when i was teaching intro to philosophy i you know i did the the school's curriculum the first time the second time i said nope and i pulled out the ado mm. and marcus aurelius and mm -hmm. i think we did the symposium and got the the Tao Te Ching and a couple other things but you could see the students felt it was like felt fed finally for the first yes. time nourished and and, it, and I think, you know, part of this for me is, uh, you know, and I've, I've written about this a lot in my books, but it, and you talk about it in, in the way you talk about practices, mm -hmm. right? And Hado talks about practices. Philosophy is, is not, like he says, it's a way of life. It's not a collection of data and learning a certain set of arguments or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Which is how it's usually taught. But, th but that's not like what students want and that's not what human beings need because we're i think we we all crave wisdom of some kind and for me this led to sociology um because well because it's kind of a because some of the self sophi sociological uh heroes i guess with vladimir sloviev and uh jane led and john portage there's they're initiation into a sociological way of way of being actually and, and Jakob Burma starts with a vision but as I as I encountered that and actually also the Catholic philosopher or theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar yeah where they talk about the disclosure of beauty mm -hmm. you know and where you could and also how a contemplative um, disposition toward nature or literature or any music can disclose something that's greater than the sum of its parts mm -hmm. right and which to me that seemed you know i had some i would call them visionary experiences as a young man but but some of them can be crazy <laughs> if you you know what i mean if you're not prepared for it if you don't know what it is it's it can be disconcerting and people actually run into trouble as, as Jordan told you in that interview, it could be dangerous, right? Mm -hmm. It can be dangerous. Um, but to me, it seemed that what, uh, at least that, that contemplative disposition toward things could, was a safer way to avoid the danger, maybe a little bit, or maybe to minimize some of the dangers that would happen for instance, and then we can then we'll get into the the, the heart of our, our mystery here. So when I was 20, 24, 25, I was met I, I like you, I kind of drifted away from my religious upbringing. At, as soon as I turned 18, <laughs> my mother said, You have to go to mass until you're 18. I turned 18, stopped. And uh <clears throat> but I had been hanging around with some Hare Krishnas. There was a big Hare Krishna temple in Detroit where I'm from. And one weekend, my girlfriend and I were on, we went on the way to a cottage and we spent the weekend there and I was meditating on, on Lake Huron. And I had this kind of, it wasn't really a physical vision, but it was, it certainly felt like a presence and there was, I was beholding something. And I saw uh, the Kalki avatar or Krishna on the back of this white horse coming across Lake Huron. And, you know, I, I, I didn't freak out and I didn't, I just kind of had this experience. Well, well, that was something, something serious just happened, you know, and it just hap so happened that that day was Sunday or we went our, we our way home and we stopped at the Hare Krishna temple because they used to always have a, a feast on Sunday afternoons and 
prayers and stuff. And that just happened to be a big feast day of Krishna. I can't remember which one it was. And and I and I told one of my friends there what had happened. He said, Oh yeah, I can see that. Um now I've never I have actually I hadn't thought too much about that for a long time until just last summer when I was out scything in in the meadow across from our house and I started and it was thunder in the in in the distance and I kept I started thinking about that experience. It was some 35 years ago um and i didn't have at that time anybody to talk to about that to give me you know to give me reflection and other than people who didn't have you know kind of a uh, a philosophical or intellectual grounding or a spiritual grounding to offer me any advice so i didn't you know i didn't really bury it but i didn't think about it a whole lot but it but it was always present but when I saw your video with Jordan the other week, that's the first thing I thought of was my experience. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could share with us what that experience was and maybe talk about what you think that means. Sure. I want to first comment on what you just said, because I think it's important. I think one proper dimension of the meaning crisis is not only this wisdom famine that we've been talking about, it's also that people, it's probably, I mean, I've heard different estimates, somewhere between 30 and 40% of the population have anomalous experiences. Uh, and many people do not have, and that seems to be flow re relatively independent of their religious background. There mm -hmm. are atheists reporting these and writing mm -hmm. books about them. Um, and, 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 but the thing is, we have no framework with which to provide people how to properly metabolize uh, these experiences and and then um, what end up often end up happening is people try to sort of do it in an autodidactic fragmented way which can mm -hmm. often be very self-deceptive and harmful and so I, I just want to comment I think the fact uh, not only is there a wisdom famine dimension to the meaning crisis there's a there's a lack of a framework to help people process uh, these experiences that seem to have a very high spontaneous right within the population and then we of course we can add in uh you know people who are doing practices to induce them and of course then the psychedelic rev uh, renaissance is also pushing them and yeah. so I'm, I, I'm 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 making an argument that i think there's an even a moral obligation to start asking ourselves and i want to do it philosophically and scientifically i'm a cognitive scientist you know what is a proper framework that we could bring uh to bear upon these experiences such that people could metabolize them and realize them as the cultivation of virtue and wisdom and not spin them off into narcissism or go down rabbit holes of their own personal magical metaphysics or whatever, right? I, uh, there's all kinds of ways in which people spin off from these things. Right. Uh, and so I just wanted to make that point. I, it's, it's, it's kind of, I think, so part of what motivates me is not only the hunger, it's also the danger. Uh -huh. if I can put it that way. So I just wanted to comment on that. So thank you for giving Absolutely. me the space to do that. One um, question about that, though, John, yeah, just please. if you don't mind. I if don't you mind. Were, that's a very, I think, noble project yeah. to build that up again. Do you feel like you can, to take on that project, or if, if people do, is there a pretty good body of work already from the likes of Timothy Leary, Aldous Huxley, Gerald Hurd, Alan Watts, or do we have good insights from them? With When you talked about the Renaissance, you implied that earlier generation, you know, the documented psychedelics and things like that. So, to, yep. no, we have we have new people now, and uh, and and new theory, mm -hmm. and 
new data and new measurement techniques uh, and, and new things like uh, uh, the bigger picture. Uh, uh, my, my friend Ali Biner, you know, the thing with DMT is it's ephemeral. It just lasts briefly. Yeah. Well, you know what we can do now? We can hook people up to IV and they can have extended experience. And then we mm. can have multiple people. And because they have extended experience, their phenomenological detail is greater. Uh, like you get things that are really interesting. Like Ali and I were talking about this, that when it goes longer, people initially, they're sort of super fascinated with the content of the experience, the right, the entities. But when it gets extended, they they many of them flip to, they're more interested in how, like they're more interested in 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 the process rather than the content, mm -hmm. and, and then they start to also they start to start to take responsibility. Like how am I respond? Like it, it, and you get you 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 get a and that's just because we now understand better the chemical. We have the technology. We can properly put people in a safe space. We can we can we understand we have to get multiple people and get them talking to each other like we have better research techniques and uh, uh, michael that's just one example of many many things yeah. right and so uh, and it, you know it's not just it's not just psychedelic experiences the griffith lab is doing all kinds of stuff on mystical experiences per se uh, there's a lot of work uh, go there's just there's a burgeoning of work both empirical and theoretical that is happening right now um, and I'm uh, I'm grateful that I get to be a part of it and participate in it and talk to uh, a lot of these people. So you get people who are bringing in sort of cutting edge cognitive science to bear on these phenomena who, you know, have, have, have we, 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 we did get and I don't want to be dismissive. We, we often got good phenomenological descriptions from the past, but now we can start to link the phenomenology to the functionality. Like for example, my lab, we did an experiment. You would have thought this would have been done. It's a well, it's actually it's a it's a correlation, but it was a, an empirical study, I should say. Um, is there a correlation between having mystical experiences and enhanced meaning in life? There's a question to just ask, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? And the answer is, unsurprisingly, yes. But when you try and look at, yeah, but what is actually mediating that? It's not so much the content. It's it's something that looks like more like the insight machinery, something like what's going on when people have that aha insight experience. Right. And that tells you something really interesting about, uh, you know, mystical experiences and their potential relationship to flow experiences, et cetera. I don't want to, I mean, I could, I have, and I do Absolutely. talk about that at great length, um, but that. I'm just trying to give you a taste of how I would I could answer that question. And it, it, brilliant, thank you, thank you. Yeah, and and I would add, I mean, it's also my experience as a musician and poet is the experience of of the beautiful, mm, right? Yes. Which which I mean, in, I don't know if you're familiar with the the wonderful I can't get kind of call him New Age guitarist Michael Hedges who died oh. in 1997. We really a, one of the most innovative guitarists ever. And I saw an interview with him one time and he he talked about, well, every time I write a song, I change the tuning of the guitar. And the universe said, well, why do you do that? He goes, because when I do, an entire universe opens up. Yeah. yeah. Which is the experience of, of of music. Even, you know, you could hear a piece of music you've heard a hundred times, but it's that one time. It's the falling in love experience. When it opens too. up, right? When, and you, because you open up as, as the as the audience for that. Um, So, so... So what? So tell us what happened with you and the story yeah, yeah, related yeah, yeah. To, to, to Jordan. Yeah, and it was a really fascinating discussion. But I think I think there are some 
resonances with what I went through when I was 25. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, So, I mean, I also, it was interesting. I talked about it at length in one of the episodes of After Socrates, what I called the Socratic shift, and I was making the argument for understanding the self as dialogical rather than monadic and and uh, and I did this at length, and literally, you know, tens of thousands of people watched it, and not much uh, blowback. Um, as I'll use your word, my, uh, uh, mm. uh, Michael. Uh, but um, this one was different. I guess it's because Jordan Peterson, uh, uh, and uh, uh, so the experience was. I was. Um, I'd already been doing sort of imaginal practices, very much influenced by uh, Corbin and other people doing work mm -hmm. on the imaginal. And I've been doing a lot of, I'm going to be giving a talk on Saturday at a cognitive science conference about the imaginal and how it's central to uh, being mm -hmm. rational. That's really crucial yeah. to being rational. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I was, I was, uh, uh, um, uh, I think of, I think of sort of four dimensions of the dialogical. We talk about dime, the dialogical, the imaginal, the mindful, and the embodied as sort of four dimensions. You want to be making sure you're touching on if you're trying to cultivate wisdom. And so, I've been doing imaginal practices. And then, in addition to that, um, and and this is what I want to say. I, I was lucky that there was an entire ecology of practices that I had been practicing for literally decades wrapped around this. Right. Right. And so I, I, I want to be really clear about that. Um, and so I, and, and then I was starting to do, the, and it was, it was, it was not just scientific exploration, but it was also personal. I was, uh, I was doing some um, IFS, the self therapy uh, work, and the book was especially written. Uh, and one of, this is one of the pronouncements about, about IFS is it's very, it's very powerful for sort of self therapy, especially if you do it, if you sort of, toggle between doing it by yourself with yourself and doing it with another person. And I was doing it with a very close friend of mine. Many of you might've seen him. He's uh, the associate director of the River Viking Foundation now, Christopher mm -hmm. Master Pietro, right? And we've done a lot of work together. We continue. He's, he's, he's uh, next to my beloved partner. He is uh, the most important person, uh, you know, uh, you know, that, um, right. That I have sort of a friendship with. My I have a profound relationship with my kids, but they're my kids, and that's a different thing, oh, yeah. right? Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so we were doing IFS and doing it quite significantly, and you know, and there was both the therapeutic, you know, tuning in, and I also got to talk to uh, my good friend uh, uh, Mark Lewis about this because not only is he a great neuroscientist, he's also you know a former addict, and he also is a strong uh, uh, believer in, I think that's the right way to put it, IFS. And so doing the, doing this and, you know, seeing, I have some criticism of Schwartz's ontology and his, and his psychology. And, you know, I'm doing that science thing and I'm also doing the therapeutic thing. And I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm, there's, you know, there's a healing process going on, um, and trying to deal with some deep issues around, um, uh, because of my upbringing, I have an anxious attachment style and it was impacting my uh, romantic relationship. So I was doing uh, work on that. Um, so I'm trying to convey that I'm coming at this with, and I also have Chris who was like, like <laughs> almost my second self. And so I've got this tremendous mindfulness around it. There's this scientific investigation. There's this therapeutic going deep into attachment, which goes again into the guts of the psyche. I, my good friend, uh, 
uh, Chris, and we're going back and forth. And so we're doing this and we're, so oh, I want to convey, we're doing this very deeply. Um, uh, but wild. also, pardon me? I said wild. It's great. Yes. And, you know, you, and you get the parts work and, and they get this semi-autonomous thing where they're talking mm -hmm. to you and you, you have to, you have to do this thing and we can maybe talk about it. We have to, you have to lend them your voice until they take over the voice from you. Right. And that, and that's when, when that flip happens, that's when you start to get some of the therapeutic benefits and you, and you feel parts of your psyche uh, being healed just because they're being allowed to speak. It's, mm -hmm. it's this powerful. Ex and of course, and this is, part of the work that Rowan and others have done, right? This, this is, this, this, and this is something Schwartz doesn't talk quite enough about. The parts revolution is happening in psychotherapy. Like there's all parts. of this. Yep. Yeah. All of the you know, Jungian, neo-Jungian, uh, Gestalt, neo-Gestalt, dialectical behavioral, like all of this is happening and they're all converging on this sort of set of practices. And I don't think that's happenstance. I think we're mm -hmm. sort of, we're moved to the, to the place where we're getting out of Charles Taylor's buffered self and mm -hmm. we're starting to open up, right? In a profound way and so all of this is running and then and uh, i'd had a, just a, a particularly powerful session with chris we took turns being the, the 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 person doing the ifs and the person facilitating it and i had been i had been doing it and he had been facilitating and i came home and i was and then i was doing it you know and i was actually writing it out and all that stuff and i was doing a, a practice <laughs> and so I'm in the middle of doing a parts work and I'm talking with a part and then a presence comes in psychologically, but more than numinous, uh, archetypal, um, and sort of says, okay, put all that aside. You're going to interact with me right now. And it's like, okay. Um, and like you, um, I had enough mindfulness training and rationality training and stuff to not just sort of, ah, I sort of, I was able to uh, sort of orient quickly, and I was also doing the IFS, and you you got like that that prepared me, um, and so I said, "Well, who are you?" And I'm Hermes, and and, and right, and of course, part part of that just, I mean, I'm. I'm this sort of meaning maven, right? I'm about meaning. I'm about <laughs> communication. I'm about bridging between the worlds, right? I, right. So this just goes <clears throat> deep into me, and I realize, oh, this is something. It's calling to something deep, but um, it's also calling beyond me. It's it, it's easily trans egoic, and I I'm, I get a sense of it even being transjective. It's something that's not just within my subjectivity, but also picking up on ways in which reality can be disclosed to me, because of course that's what hermeneutics does, right? As it gets into the beauty of the text and reveals something that you haven't seen, discloses it. And uh, like Heidegger, I think there's a hermeneutics to experience and not just a hermeneutics to text mm -hmm. and all of that, right? And so again, I have that, luckily I have that there. So I don't just get pushed over by this numinous presence. And I think, Oh wow! And I, I start I dialogue a bit, and now I'm not my like you know that mental imagery is on a continuum. And some people are a fantastic; they can't. I'm not there, but I don't have like I'm not young. I don't have vivid, almost hallucinogenic <laughs> mental imagery. And so you know, I was and IFS I found so powerful because you could do it dialogically. You could write in a dialogue, and of course that's very platonic. And I I fell into that very readily. And so I then 
I had a good friend, Anderson Todd, who also might have, you might have seen him. And he's a psychotherapist. He's a union, but he's, and he, he put me onto Raf's work, ally work. And I went through the book, I did the practices and I went, oh, um, and I didn't realize there's this whole community that's doing this. And I started regularly and reliably setting aside a time where I would have written dialogues with Hermes and continually surprised um, by the wisdom that comes out of it. Two, two ways in which there's wisdom. One is I often get advice that I couldn't have sort of generated on my own. I'll try and give one. Uh, piece because I'm trying to make this as concrete as possible so it doesn't You're doing just. Great. Um, and so, and here I got a I got a sort of a little bit of my psychological dirty laundry, but I'm wrestling with, you know, fame or you know approaching the limelight of fame, and part of me is I, I'm really concerned about it and and trying to be virtuous, and that's part of the reason I set up the Verveki Foundation to keep a lot of things at arm's length and moderate for me. Um, but there's also a part of me uh, that, you know, wants the fame, like it's like we're primates and, oh, ah, right. And, 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 and I'm trying to counterbalance that, <laughs> that, that problem. And, 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 and my partner, Sara was really helpful about that because initially when people were coming up to me and they're like, and they were sort of having a moment, I would push them away because I didn't want to become the guru. And right. she said, don't do that. You're all about connecting and religio. They're having a moment of connection and you're shutting it down. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I don't want to become the guru. She said, well, treat it like they've come up and they're and, and you and them start playing beautiful music and then the music ends and they go away and you enjoy it while it's there and you let them have their moment. And so all of that was happening, right? I, I want to, but there's still this, you know, and it was this thing about, Wow, I could tell there's there was this knot in me about well, I, I'm almost famous, and there was kind of a resentment, you know, um, uh, about that. Um, and then Hermes said to me, he said, uh, he said, stop wrestling with this that way. And I said, what do you mean? And it, it's he said, look, being almost famous is a gift, because if you're almost famous, you can talk to the famous people but you don't have all the temptations and the problems of the famous people. This is where you want to be, where you can most readily do the work you want to do and be the person you want to be. And I sort of like, I mean, and I'm trying to be honest. I was like, wow, that's really good. That like, you know, like it was like almost like you would be in therapy and like you'd get yeah. that kind of reframing. So that's one, and that's one of many examples. That's in the content of the interactions, but the the relationship itself, because part of wrestling with all of this, and this has been a longstanding issue with me, is I'm a good teacher. I think I'm, I I seem to get lots of evidence for that. Um, I'm, I I think I'm a quite good theoretician. Um, I, I get lots of about that, and so I. Sorry, gentlemen, I'm going to have to try and say this, and you're going to have to be charitable because I don't. I'm not trying to be. To... This is great, John. Okay. I come up with good ideas to put it in sort of, uh, you know, and I can do it quite readily and, and the people, right? And I've always had um, an ambivalence towards that because a lot of these don't come from me in an ego-driven fashion. And so I often felt guilty taking credit for them, but mm -hmm. I also felt weird, like, well, who do I give credit to? <laughs> I, and as they you don't see from come my... in an ego-driven fashion. That's key. Come... They don't come in an ego-driven fashion, right? Because they right. come naturally. Because they come naturally. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and 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 you know, and and as you can see from my public work, I really 
I really love and want to give credit, right? It's very important to me. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was always sort of torn about this. And now it's like, oh, there's John doing that. And then there's Hermes. And I can give credit to Hermes for all of this and talk to him. And it's just alleviated that that knot in mm -hmm. me in a, so how both, did you name it how did you name it before though at all this thing was there did you have any name for it I would, just, I would just i would just give i would just say like the, your muse or anything yeah. well but well no and i should have because yeah. hermes is my muse hermes hermes mm -hmm. is both the muse and the musicality of my inner intelligibility right um mm -hmm. but i would just say so your daemon your angel anything yes um okay and um I would just use very sort of tepid terms like intuition or the unconscious, which wasn't particularly mm -hmm. helpful to me. It would be a theoretical label, but it didn't it didn't give me the the kind of moral satisfaction I needed in order to make that not unknot. Mm -hmm. um, and so in two ways, both and each each one of these is just an example of a much richer ongoing things, they're they're this is how the relationships unfolding now it's only it's almost always internal but sort it's sort of internal external insofar as i'm writing right um and it's that again that you give voice and then the voice takes on a life of its own mm -hmm. um but it, there was one time um where i i actually had what i would call a visionary experience i was getting into bed and that presence seemed outside of me and it seemed like an angel completely in bronze. Um, and, um, and, uh, and it was just sort of startling to me. And, and then when I sort of dialogued about it, it was like, yeah, don't make a big deal of it. That's just, that was just helpful. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, I, no, so that's, that's about it. It's interesting with, when you mentioned, well, Martin, I mean, the, the guide of souls. I mean, because that's kind of what you do yeah. for a living, right? Yeah. <laughs> the psychopomp. And and you also, you know, I think it was in the interview with Jordan, but you taught you use a word that I use quite often in my work, which is mitaksu. Yes. Right? The between. Yes. That's what yeah. I meant about transjective. That's my word for the that's my modern word for the metaxu. It's neither subjective or nor objective. It is that which binds them and guides between them and moves between them. Like Alethea in Heidegger's sense. Right. Right. Um, and so um yeah, that that and, and, and it's an ongoing thing. And now I've been I, you know, I'm doing a lot of cognitive scientific research around this, you know, you know, uh, you know, Geiger's book on the third man factor and Elderson Day's new book on presence, all the work on people who hear voices and are not schizotypical or or psychotic uh, and, and all the work on people having muses, uh, people like Robert Louis Stevenson, who were writing novels and the characters would come alive and he would wake up and they'd be talking to each other. Mm -hmm. All the stuff that's happening in lucid dreaming with like wait, once you open this door, what I've realized is there is a huge family of phenomena. And right. to my mind, that means there is a legitimate scientific question to be investigated here. And that is so not only am I doing a personal practice, I am undertaking that scientific investigation. Right. And I think, you know, John, I got to yeah. ask you, have you ever, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Very much. I was just a one yeah. book, you're, you're listing, you're listing a bunch of books. Have you ever, when I was reading your stuff, I thought immediately with, with your quest for meaning of Owen Barfield, you know, and then course, he yeah. has a book called, yeah, Unancestral Voice and so forth, where he, he calls it the Megid, 
where this other entity that's part him and also transubjective, um, he finds it in the historic personality of an old um, Hasid, Joseph Caro, but he calls it the Magid, but it's the unancestral voice and it's all written from this perspective. And I wondered what's, if you would, I've it's read unancestral you. voice. I've, yep. What's the, the book's called on ancestral voice. Is it a book or an essay? Yeah, it's no, it's a book. And he uses the same, uses the same trope or experience in a sister book to that called um, speakers. No, not speakers meeting. I forget, but um, unancestral voice. It's all about Owen transubjective. Barfield, right? mm -hmm. yep, One of the, yep, yep. the inkling. Okay, well, that's the same guy. And of course, I know about Barfield because, you know, he's got this notion yeah. of participatory knowing that I do a lot of work. And meaning, on. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's crucial. Yeah. And Michael, I'm sorry. Thanks for that little. So, you no, know, so where I was going is, you know, I mean, for one thing, I mean, of course, Hermes being the god of writing and you're doing this dialogic work, which is yeah. writing, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a personification of something, right? And that's, mm -hmm. that's right? Mm -hmm. Yep, very much. Yeah. And I, I, I had, during when I was in graduate school, I had a real, identification with hermes plus he's the trickster he's he's funny and yeah. right um but the other thing you know and i couldn't help but think of this when you were talking about this and then you mentioned robert louis stevenson and uh really i wonder if any work has been done with poets or composers from a scientific perspective exploring this exact thing uh like czesław milos the polish Nobel laureate when they asked him how he wrote he was he needs said, i have a daemonium we just takes yeah. takes over, and I know this. I know this from experience, and in fact, even when I play music with my friends, for instance, we get into you know, kind of into an improvisational mode where you don't know where anything's going, and it happens, and you you don't even, you lose track of time, and when we, when it finishes, we we say we call it mysticism, right? <laughs> I don't know what happened, but that was so beautiful. I, we could never do it again. Um, but this is this is so important, I think, um, what you're talking about, because, um, you know, the the classic mm -hmm. work Mysticism by Evelyn Underhill, where she talks about different individuals having and tries to look at the phenomenology of, of mysticism. But she, she can't help but bump up against poets. Yes, of course, because there's something extraordinarily resonant with that, because they are also um you know, not everybody, but or, or or any novelist, but certainly Plato talks about it with yeah. Diotima, right? Yeah. And there's something that happens which in, in that act of composition, where where you like you said, it's kind. Of, there's part of it that's very rational, and part it's logical, but there's another part that's erotic or other in some extraordinary way. Otherwise, it won't happen. Yes. If it's too intellectual, it won't happen. If it's too out there, it, it'll be like a you know, mushroom trip and you don't get anything from it. You know, it will just come back exhausted. Um, so I, I so that's to me that's supremely interesting that you, that what, what you're doing is bumping up on what I'm doing, but in a creative manner, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm I'm trying to do work. I'm trying to track down any scholarly work, scientific work, philosophical work on the artistic muse. I'm a big Beatles fan, and I was always perplexed by Paul McCartney. I know. And, right? Eleanor Rigby, like astonishing music, astonishing poetry yesterday, same thing. And then Paul talks, and you go, what? This is the guy that, <laughs> yeah. right? And, <laughs> and, 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 and that's no insult to him. I mean, he, he like, um, uh, but like that. I think Leonard Cohen's Suzanne 
is the mystical genius work of the 20th century where it was a real girl. It's almost like Dante. But the divine feminine in Suzanne in these three movements in that piece are of mind-blowing proportion. That would be my my biggest example of, uh, you know, it was, in, it was in the very personal, personal part of him with a love for a lady you can see on YouTube. She still exists. And she's uh -huh. like, why didn't he ever send me any royalties? Right. <laughs> but but through her, he had the whole divine feminine and all the imagery is there in that one song, Suzanne, you know. The interesting thing for me is um, how this moves from just imagery to like, uh, like, uh, uh, like, presence there's a there's a personification mm. of the presence of a perspective like and i mean people go oh that's so weird you do it every night in your dreams right you you have these other you have these other minds and we we now have some research from lucid dreaming that they seem to have perspectives other than the ego perspective and they seem to be able to tell you things that you don't know um and you know again that again most of the population right. is doing this there 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 there's there's a lot of untapped potential and now I want to say something. I respect people who are 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 like who are that that they're writing to me in in kindness and they're they're worried and they're, be careful and I I get that. Like you know, as we were talking around earlier, you know, if sure. you don't have a huge framework around this, this can blow you to bits, right? And and, and if you don't proceed cautiously and respectfully, even reverentially, you can it can blow you to bits. But on the other hand, I don't want. Uh, I think there's a potential here that is very, very powerful and needed uh, right now in an important way. And, and I, uh, again, uh, I don't know. I don't want to be too self. I'm not trying to be self-aggrandizing. I'm not trying right. not right. But Wait, what your work makes me think is the uh, the old trope that why are we blasting off going to the moon? You know, when Dostoevsky through others like the work you're doing is taking that much more important journey in the inward direction. You know, and it's kind of a poetic view of what you're doing. I, I, I uh, thank you. Uh, being compared to Dostoevsky is a, is a little bit humbling, but, uh, uh, but again, you know, uh, it, it's it's like if there, if I'm, if my intuition, and I think I have the right to trust my intuition a little bit. I've been, uh, you know, a cognitive scientist, for, you know, for uh, since you know, for basically thirty more years, right? I started a long time ago, uh, and. Uh, um, I, I have a strong intuition, and it seems to be being, uh, being uh, reinforced by the investigation that there's a huge phenomena here that needs proper, careful, rigorous, reflective study, uh, and not just by from the outside, but anthropologically from people who are also on the inside doing it. Um, and that is uh, that is my response. It's like yes to people who have the blowback. I'm I'm talking about the blowback. Is mm -hmm. yes, I understand. And when it's loving, I I, I thank them and I respect and I, I try to reassure them. I'm not going into this, I hope, irrationally or stupidly, right? Um, but on the other hand, I want to say, but there's an opportunity here. And every time we have opened up to this properly and rigorously about dimensions, um, about uh, dimensions of the psyche, dimensions of cognition, something has been gained for, for mm -hmm. you know, and um, so I, I feel, I feel there's both an epistemic and a moral call to, to do this pursuit. Right. Let me ask, it's, I, it's, yeah. I think it would be my biggest question would be in the poetry and Michael, I'm going to need your help, but in the poetry of the divine feminine, I feel 
and I'm going back to the romantics, it's there in Coleridge. And I don't want to reduce what you're doing, John, to the scientific gaze, right? Mm -hmm. But that the divine feminine, there's this whole tradition that the divine feminine will run from the scientific gaze because she can only be drawn out by something like a kiss in Sleeping Beauty um, through the poetic, right? It's there in this this uh, this fan work of fantasy genius, The Last Unicorn. Mm -hmm. um, and it's there in the cult of chivalry that to take the, the more left-brained approach to the divine feminine, she's always going to confuse or she's going to hide. But like, what do you say about that tradition? Socrates. So the mm -hmm. demonium is in Socrates as his muse, and yet it is a, he never, it never calls him free from dialogical rationality. It calls him out of monological rationality, self-referential rationality, but it always calls him to dialogical rationality. And we also have to understand, I don't, I'm not recommending bringing the scientific gaze while you are in the practice. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about bringing the scientific gaze when uh, after or outside of the practice to try and understand mm -hmm. what's going on. Let me give you an analogy. I don't go in when somebody's in the flow state and start asking them questions because you know what I'll break? The flow state. But mm -hmm. do I think I can study the flow state? Yes, and I've published on it and done work on it. And that helps to understand better what's going on in the flow state and how we could do a couple things, maybe enhance it, but also couple it better to, like, if we don't do this, look what's happening. The flow state is being taken up and being commodified and right. being ma manipulated by corporate forces, right? But if we have a deeper scientific understanding and we wed that, to the cultivation of virtue and wisdom, then mm -hmm. we can do a great service. So yeah. that's how I would answer you. Um, fascinating. It, it, yes. Well, okay. and I think also, yeah, John, really fascinating. John, I also, I think also what part of what's probably contributing to the meaning crisis is um, the imaginal is pretty much disappeared. Oh yeah. From education, right? Yes. Yes. So mm -hmm. with, with that used to, you know. There needs to be much more emphasis on that. And I think what we also see is uh, because you, we're, you're, you're kind of depriving young people or, or people in general of this experience of the transcendent in the mundane. Yes. When uh, somebody asked Robert Frost why, why he wrote poetry, he said, well, I write poetry because when I do, I tell myself things I didn't know that I knew. You know? <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah, I and my experience, like, you know, sometimes I wrote that, whoa, where did that come from? I have no idea where they came from. But it's the, but I think, you know, with the people who are concerned about, uh-oh, Rebecca's looking at, at pagan gods now. Um, I think, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I think what, in, in fact, this, was it last, couple, last summer, um, I was walking, we live, we're surrounded by woods, I'm walking out of the woods, to the to the house and out of the corner of my eye i swear i saw the god pan mm, mm. and you know and i had been thinking a lot about i wrote a bit a bit about him in some people would say you'd been drinking a lot not thinking that's right but 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 i think to me you know when people would probably accuse me of being you know hey, he's been conjuring again that uh i th i think just like as what happens in writing poetry or in dreaming that these entities or whatever you want to call them, these presences clothe themselves in a in a visual vocabulary we can relate to. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, what would be the point, right? 
it's not as you noted it's no coincidence that this is hermes for me i i i, I totally mm -hmm. get that right um and, and and the interesting thing for me is part of what has what has happened in the dialogue is i uh, i'm sort of it's not just the hermes imagery i've been led to you know the analogs like thoth uh uh like hanuman mm -hmm. um, right and for me also michael the the archangel and, and you know and, mm -hmm. and it's and it's been sort of like uh hermes is actually the through line between all of these rather mm -hmm. than any one of them they're all uh, archetypally related for sure yeah and, and 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 again that's been a way of not sort of locking into any kind of, mm -hmm. like, I guess, idolatry or whatever you want to call it. Right. For me. And, uh, I, and, I, and then they're spontaneous, and that's probably the one of the more important they, things about that. Like dreams, they're spontaneous. Yeah, they're spontaneous, but they're but unlike dreams, they're spontaneous, and but there's they're spontaneous with uh, with uh, they arrive impregnated with intelligibility. Uh, that if you are, to my mind, if you're reverentially in right relationship with him, that intelligibility will unfold for you. Hmm. But, and I was just lecturing on this today, but intelligibility, right? If it's connected to reality and reality is an inexhaustible fount of intelligibility, hmm. if it's connected to reality, the intelligibility, the light, the phenomena, the shining in of intelligibility is hmm. inseparably bound up with like the withdrawal into the inexhaustible mystery, right? right. Um, and, 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 and so you, you have to be properly, like you have to have a proper reverential stance but if you do you'll get you'll get you'll get the oh here's the the intelligibility unfolds but it's simultaneously always calling you to the horizon of you know of the intelligibility and what is beyond that um and remembering that um mm -hmm. you know i i i i i take drew highland's argument very seriously that he said what plato was trying to get us to realize is that we are simultaneously finite and and capable of transcendence. If we just embrace our finitude, we fall prey to despair and servitude. If right. we just embrace our our transcendence, we fall prey to inflation and hubris. But if we hold them together in tonos, a creative tension, we will properly realize mm -hmm. our humanity. And for me, that's not just words. That's that is what I'm trying to enact when I come into the relationship with these kinds of yeah. numinous aspects of reality. If I can put it as nebulously as that. No, and what you just described is the Pythagorean monochord, right? How because do you mean? In the monochord, I mean that's. Uh, Pythagoras's last words were study the monochord. Uh, and the monochord is a one one stringed instrument what they which they use to study intervals. Yes. And the idea was that at the, like if you're thinking of a guitar where the, where the strings go to the bridge would be the earth and where where they're tuned well God does the tuning but at, at the nut at the top would be heaven, right? Mm -hmm. And beyond it is is God pulling the strings, but it what keeps it a lot what keeps it uh in balance is the tension of the string. Yes. Right? And, and the, the balance the point is the middle of that string yeah. the octave, right? You have the same imagery in in uh, the uh, the Buddha and uh, the enlightenment, right? He gets out of the water, the little girl has saved him, and he hears the musician teaching the apprentice. No, you have to understand, you can't tighten the, the string of the lyre too tight or too loose. You've got to find the mm -hmm. middle. And the middle path, like it's, it, 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 it is to live in this resonant tonos uh, mm -hmm. properly. Um, and, and, and again, Hermes personifies that. And you see, Absolutely. this is what I mean about it. It, it just keeps sort of rolling on mm -hmm. itself um, in a powerful way.
Now, now you mentioned earlier, John, um, work with DMT. Yes. And so I had an interesting experience a year ago, Thanksgiving, with two of my kids. After dinner, we were sitting around in the living room. And my then, which had to be 21 or 20 or 21 year old, was asking me if I'd ever heard of DMT. And I had, I'd heard about it, but I hadn't read anything about it. And I said, well, I don't know. And he's, he's explained what, he, what he'd been reading. And then my 30, was 31 at the time, my 31 year old said, oh yeah, I have a friend who's been doing that. I said, well, what happened? He said, well, first he went on a trip and he saw, saw the elves and- His face elves, yeah. Yeah, and he was like interested and it was all fascinating. And then he went back a week later and he saw the elves again. And one of the elves turned to him and said, hey, you're not supposed to be here. But he didn't pay attention. Then a week later, he went back again. And it was the same scenario. And he sees the same elves. And the, the same elf turned to him again and he yelled at him and said, I thought I told you not to come back here. Yeah, It's not for you. Okay, get out of here. Um, So my question is... uh. What have, what, have, what have you, because I, I was actually discussing this with some students last week, saying how fascinating it is, but I don't know what it is. And what what have you discovered that it is, it is happening in those in those uh, experiences, and especially the fact that they go back to the same place, it seems? Sort of. You have to be really careful because of the, uh, like, it's when you, one of the things that's come out of the longer study that I mentioned where people can stay in it longer. It's, it's not quite like that. There's a, so there's a lot of that's happening because of the brevity of the experience and reconstructive memory. And the okay. fact that we've got a, a thing in our left hemisphere, that's wrapping narratives rapidly around things uh, and, and, uh, and, and the way it's getting stored in, in memory. Um, so, but nevertheless, and the fact that this happens to uh, it's happened, it happens to multiple people that they get this. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to say something uh, that's initially going to sound like a, an orthogonal digression. So let me do it. And then let me, uh, as a way of I trust you. getting to something. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> okay, so John Geiger in The Third Man Factor talks about um, this experience. There's two people doing ice climbing. I I, I don't understand rock climbing, uh, let alone ice climbing. Uh, yeah. but, but, you know, but, but, but uh, uh, my stepson and stepdaughter, they, they do uh, rock climbing and it's powerful. I get that induces the flow state basically uh but anyways these two people are are ice climbing and i guess unexpectedly to me but maybe to them they fall um and one dies immediately the other guy's in the snow and he's he's hurt and he's bleeding and everything and he, he's thinking i'm just gonna die and then he gets the felt presence the sense presence walking up and saying get up your nose is bleeding it's snowy you can use the blood on the snow so you don't walk in circles, and that's how you can get out, and that's how he got out. Now, what do you do with that? And here's where I'm coming around. Well, what you do is you do a lot of work that we already have from the 60s onward about implicit learning. We, can, we pick up huge, complex patterns, and you can show this experimentally. Um, and we, and of course, the only experience we have of that knowledge is intuition. In fact, I think Hogarth's right. Intuition is just what implicit learning has learned and what can come up. And what seems to happen is, and, you know, and this is maybe what's happening with dream figures, they plug into, uh, some implicit learning that has not been readily connected to standard egoic consciousness, and you know adv advice is given um and 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 that and, and please note that implicit learning isn't just 
psychological. It's picking up on complex patterns that are disclosing reality in some way. So it's it's often, you know, like I say, transjective rather than just merely subjective or objective. And I think that's I think that's a a, a plausible thing to uh, be investigating because we do have a lot of e experimental work about it. Um, like so, what you can do is you can you can you can use a a, a Markov grammar, a, a artificial grammar that just says, like when I'm putting letters and numbers together, the rule is I have to have I always have to have two odd numbers if I put any number down. You're just arbitrary rules, right? And I make letter strings. And what you do is you show them to people. You show them a bunch of these. Here's one. Here's one. Here's one. and they're long enough that you can't possibly hold them in memory, ex explicit working memory. Here's one, here's one, here's one, here's one. And then what you do is you stop and then you create two new sets of strings. One new strings, but generated from that same grammar and then other strings generated by a different grammar. And then you give them to people and you say, can you tell me which of these new strings belong with the ones you previously seen? And people can do this well above chance. Hmm. They can do this well <laughs> above chance. And then if you ask them how they do it, they give you two answers typically. One is, I don't know, which is the honest answer. The other is, the confabulator, oh, well, I'm doing this and this and this. But if you actually were to implement their advice, it does not predict their success. So it's just a confabulatory nar narrative. And, and I'm not saying they're lying. It's, they're probably sincere, but it's, it doesn't, it's not actually what they're doing, mm -hmm. right? Um, now, the thing about this is, and this is why, again, it, if we could bring knowledge to bear on it, the power and the there's power and peril to such implicit learning, because implicit learning doesn't clearly distinguish between it picks up on complex patterns, but if you don't educate it at all, and that's why Hogarth's book is called Educating Intuition, it doesn't distinguish correlational patterns from causal patterns, right? And that's very problematic uh, because you can also be picking up on right what you think are real patterns and they're not. And then that can lead you into all kinds of significant difficulty. Um, and so what you want to do is you want to try and figure out how do I properly set up my environment so my implicit learning is actually picking up on causal patterns rather than correlational patterns. And so that's the kind of thing that I'm trying to give that as an example is I gave you an answer I plugged it into some cog sci, and then I get some interesting thing. A new question is, wow, there's power and peril here. What can we do about educating this intuition so we can ameliorate the peril and afford the power? And, and so that would be heavy. how- That's heavy. Yeah, <clears throat> it's really intense, yeah. Uh, it makes me think of, uh, it makes me think of AI in one sense, you know, that everything becomes causal, you know? And that in its own way, that could contribute to a world where things that we discern as a causal, you know, has been cast out or something. Does that make any it, it sense? Could. It yeah. could. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, yeah. And the capacity <laughs> to pick up on co complex. Uh, by the way, um, just I won't do the whole argument, but the argument of, that I published about how you educate uh, intuition building on Hogarth's work is um, you, you, ba you basically do something analogous to what you do in science. Because science is experimentation is about distinguishing causation from correlation. So what you want is you want clear signal. You can't have vague ideas, right? You want tight feedback between like the independent and the dependent variable, mm -hmm. right? And error matters. Your experiment can be falsified, right? Disconfirmed. Now, 
in what Hogarth says is try to set up the situation where you're learning your implicit learning because you can't replace implicit learning with explicit learning. If you give that original task to people and say, try and figure out the rules, they just, they, they crap out. They, they, right, it right, 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 right. So what you have to do is you can, but you can explicitly set up the environment. So it's structurally analogous to a scientific experiment. Now those three criteria, clear feedback, tightly coupled and error matters. Those are the three criteria that Csikszentmihalyi say induces the flow state. And the mm -hmm. argument is that the flow state is an evolutionary marker for when we're doing really good implicit learning because it's implicit learning that's picking up on real causal patterns. Wow, wow, wow. I followed that. <clears throat> I got to think about that. That's wild. Well, but notice what that does. That yeah. allows for a scientific connection between flow states over here and some of this, you know, present stuff we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. And that means we can get something like a more comprehensive theoretical explanation that is not the dissecting gaze of science. I'm not doing that mm -hmm. here. You see what I'm doing? I'm not explaining it away. I'm not dissecting it. I'm trying to afford, right? It's flourishing in our understanding in a way that can feed back into our practice in a flourishing manner. Right. Well, it reminds me of Goethe's saying that, uh, it, it, something uh, I can't remember. It's contemplatively examined opens up a new organ of perception within us. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Which yeah. is what, which is what you're describing, and it's what you know. I wish there were there were more opportunities in not just higher education, but actually K twelve education to bring students to those kinds of experiences because. Um, and I think what we see is is a an ice with, especially after COVID. I mean, I've been dealing with students who are kind of suffering from PTSD yeah. still, you know, and 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 crying out for meaning. And which is what's wonderful when I I told this story before to Mike, but uh, after COVID, I taught a course on romantic poetry, and it was just all women in the class, and. For the longest time, students were not talking in class, even before COVID. They were, you know, they would never have a conversation for whatever reason. And it was kind of disconcerting. And all of a sudden, these girls, they I said, so what do you think about John Keats? And they would just go into it. And then toward the end of the semester, I got to know them pretty well. I said, well, hello. You know, I've been teaching for a long time. And for the for the last 10 years, no one is talking in class. But all of a sudden, you're talking. What? Why? And they said we just went through COVID, and and we figured out what what's really meaningful, mm. and this stuff is meaningful to us. Well, that's John's work on connectivity too, right? You know, yeah, 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 mm -hmm. very much. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and the flow state. If I if I need to take one measurement from you to tell me how meaningful meaning in life, you, like how much in that sense, not semantically meaningful, but how meaningful your life is, one good predictor is how often are you in the flow state and to what degree is that flow state connected up to reality and not hijacked away in a video game or something right. else like that? And right. even people like our listeners, a sense of a life well-lived would have, like I've read something that said, like when you're truly present might add up to like three minutes for an 80 year old life. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, I've seen various things, give people a sense, like what's, how much of our life do we live not in the flow state versus how much maybe we can, some people do anything like that. So, I mean, uh, I, I don't, I, I hesitate to make a proclamation. Mm -hmm. when I don't have the relevant scientific expertise. Where I do have expertise is you can flow more 
and you can learn to flow in a way that transfers more broadly and deeply to multiple multiple domains of your life mm -hmm. and at multiple levels of your psyche. So it is very much something that is malleable um, and malleable right. in a in sets of practices that can be pursued in a disciplined manner. That's like the gospel in one sense. You know, you just preached. You know, you can oh, do more. You know, do the work. Yeah, get a cultivation practice. Do something. So so last night we took my son, 23, he turned 23 yesterday for his birthday. We took he and his girlfriend out. And uh, we were we were trying to, we had a picture of him when he was a baby. And I was trying to remember when he was, when I have nine kids, so I can't remember when everybody was born, what time of day. How many did you just say? I have nine kids. Wow. And uh, okay. <laughs> and I couldn't remember. And I was asking, now was he born? And he was born early in the morning, like five in the morning, right? And she said yes. And then I was talking about when my two daughter, my two youngest daughters are born. I think I caught them when they came out, because it was with a midwife. But I don't remember. And we were trying to explain to to, to my son and his girlfriend and the, and the other the other of our kids were there how talk about sl a, a flow state. In the presence of 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 a of a of a birth with a midwife, it, the energy there is indescribable. It's not it's like totally anything wild. else. I've got four. And of those. No wild. wonder I can't remember. And if and, you know, because I, that was being right in the in a flow state, which was um, in a highly charged flow state. Which I mean, it's pretty extraordinary. I mean, to see life come into the world. Especially if it's your own child, but I'm sure it was the same for for others who were there. So, given that we've built a little bit here, and I've got to go soon, but uh, mm -hmm. I, I want to make a proposal. Um, so, let's talk about sort of imaginal augmentation. In the imaginal, you don't look at the image; you look through the image, and it augments or discloses some aspect of reality to you. And I think. Well, I get a lot from Corban. I think there's lots of ways in which people are doing that in more mundane dimensions of their life. Um, and trying to understand that is important. But let's say we have something like imaginal augmentation. And then we have imaginal augmentation, right, of our transjective relationship to reality uh, so that we can, we can not just know it propositionally, but we can actually experience it and about how we're dynamically coupled in the way we've been talking about and we can imaginally augment that um, and, and get a, a deeper appreciation for it in both senses of, of the word appreciation. And then that, right, that that is something that does transfer broadly and deeply into different domains and different aspects of a psyche. Is that possibly what these presences are? Mm-hmm imaginal augmentation of these complex patterns of how we are dynamically coupled vertically and horizontally. And we have found particular ways in which uh, flow states emerge uh, that disclose aspects of the depths of psychological reality and um, external reality in some sort of resonant fashion. Uh, you, you're like, you're, like, you, you mentioned earlier, like falling in love with somebody, they, mm -hmm. there's a reciprocal opening, they open up and you open up and, and it reciprocally opens. And, and, and so the idea that these presences are imaginal augmentations of sort of our transjective coupling in both, like I said, both vertically levels of the psyche and horizontally uh, between the subjective and the objective worlds means that if that's right, then these 
these presences belong to an even larger family of things like subtle body experiences and other things like that, that are other ways in which we might have an imaginal augmentation of, 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 of our embodiment, where it's not understood as a property of our body alone, but as a property of our body in relation, coupled to reciprocally opening, reciprocally unfolding mm -hmm. with the environment, which is how it's understood in 4E cognitive science. Embodiment doesn't mean properties of the body just this way. It mm -hmm. means how the body is dynamically coupled to its environment. And 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 I actually presented this uh, at a couple places where people are doing work on subtle bodies. And what I and I and I made this argument. I said, "You you guys, you folks, sorry for that. You folks seem to be t toggling between. You want to say the subtle body is a purely subjective experience mm -hmm. and is a purely objective. And you and there's all. And I said, it sounds to me like you're talking about something. And this was the argument I'm making that's transjective, right. and you've got some way of imaginally augmenting that transjective hmm. aspect of embodiment and bringing it to conscious life and cognitive reflective life and that that sort of took off and so mm -hmm. um as Reduce. now there are now there are sort of three paradigms for understanding the subtle body one is sort of it's it's some mysterious energy or force sort of purely objective one more uh subjective it's a social constructed mm -hmm. and now this new which is being called the imaginal yeah well, yeah and that's actually i was just talking with i gave a lecture a week ago and one of the things I was talking about was the subtle bodies and the way prior to the scientific revolution, where it's, you know, uh, we can call them natural philosophers thought in more poetic terms. They had like, like the Buddhists, for instance, Buddhist physicians, even now, like a Tibetan Buddhist physician, you know, will not diagnose a person as having congenital heart failure. He'll say, there, there's something there's a more poetic way like the the winds yep. going through the valley will, are disturbing the, the silt in the, in the sea or something like this right so they they speak in more poetic terms which is the same thing you see prior to the scientific revolution in well even alchemy right there they they had a more metaphorical language for speaking about scientific truths as they knew them at the time mm -hmm. So, which is interesting, but I don't want to take up your much more of your time, John. I know you have have things to do. Um, this is really great. <clears throat> thank you so much, John Verveke. Mm -hmm. Um, I I will tell we will tell people we'll link your your website in, in the description of the show. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you what, we got to do this again. This is uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and I could uh, happy to I do could, it again. Yeah, I could talk to you for a long time. Yeah, it's really, really fascinating. And thank you. It's nice to have uh, an audience that is not sort of doing this sort of jarring response, but is sort of opening up and let's talk about it. Let's try and unpack it. Let's reflect on it. Let's see what's of value. Let's see what should be criticized. Um, and so mm -hmm. I, I'm very appreciative of that. It was nice uh, to be welcomed in that way. So thank you, both of you, for well, that. Means thank well. you, Jen. All right. We'll and see you again. Okay. Uh, take All right, care. everybody. Thanks for listening to the Regeneration Podcast.